ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we buy shit we don't need. Ideas are grateful. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. Ryan Keen, welcome to the Biohacking Secret Show. Anthony, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Yeah, likewise. I'm looking forward to this too, especially because you have done some gnarly, gnarly ultra endurance events. We're going to be talking about uh, nutrition for fat loss, how to take like more of a holistic approach to your fitness, mindset hacks, personalizing your nutrition template, and then some uh, some really cool biohacks that you've used to take your physical and mental performance to the highest level. So I'm, I'm pumped, man. I'm fired up. I think our listeners are really going to like this episode. You and me both, man. I'm ready to rock. All right, bro. So for, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, maybe you could uh, share with us your origin story and a little bit of your background, how you got here. Yeah. So my origin story into the fitness industry is a little bit different to most. I used to be an elementary school teacher. So I was an elementary school teacher, primary school teacher. That was my quote unquote real job before I transitioned out into the fitness industry 10 years ago. So I spent four years in an undergraduate degree getting and qualifying to become a teacher, to work with a teacher. And I was about 30 minutes into my first ever day of teaching, Anthony. And I thought, fuck, I don't want to do this. I, I, I've literally spent the last four years studying to become something that I have no interest in doing. But to cut a long story short, I worked at that job for a few years. But for those first four months, I knew every Friday that it was the weekend on Saturday. And I knew every Sunday evening I had the Monday blues knowing that I was going back to work that week. And I came home that Christmas and I asked my mom and I was kind of brainstorming with her back and forth. And I was telling her how much I hated my job and teaching. And she asked me a question, something that I put to so many people since and in a whole host of my books. And that question was, well, what would you do for free? And I never really thought about that question. I was 24. I had spent years studying to become a teacher. I thought it was something I was going to do until I was 65. And I thought about it and I said, I would work in a gym for free. I, if I had my gym membership paid and I had enough money to eat, I would happily go and just clean gym equipment. And it opened up my mind to, well, first my metric and success of what success is was all over the place mm -hmm. in terms of external validation on a quote unquote safe and secure job, what I should do in terms of this is what you're expected to do. So you go and do it. I was from a family of teachers is what was expected of me. So it was a kind of proven path that I went down. And I started to look into jobs that would fall into that category. So I went back to London. I was working as a teacher in London and I became what qualified as a fitness instructor, level two fitness instructor. And from that moment on, Anthony, I was hooked. I went and got my level three personal training badge, my strength and conditioning certified as a nutritionist, sports nutrition in particular, uh, strength and conditioning coach. And over those next two years, I worked as an elementary school teacher during the day and I worked as a personal trainer in a gym at nighttime. And the analogy I've used in books and I've used on my podcast, the Brian Keane podcast, is when I was teaching, it felt like I had spent all this time climbing a ladder. And then 30 minutes into my first job teaching day, I realized it was up against the wrong wall. And fitness felt like the ladder up against the right wall. And to cut a kind of a long story short, 
In 2014, I went full-time into personal training, did very well with it initially, and then 2016 moved online and used things like competitive bodybuilding. So before I went into endurance, I was a competitive bodybuilder and I was a professional fitness model. So I used to travel around like for two years from 2014 to 2016, Anthony. My entire schedule was going from the Ireland to the UK, to the US, to Europe, to do competitions, to do photo shoots. And that's what I did for two years. And then in 2015, my daughter was born and I was preparing for what was the, the worlds in Las Vegas at the time, the pro fitness model worlds, which is a competitive bodybuilding show. And I had decided there and then I was walking around like a zombie all the time. I was brain dead long before I got into any biohacking and actually focusing on performance and decided I can't do this. I'm going to be a rubbish father and a crap dad if I'm walking around like a zombie all the time. So I quit bodybuilding and took that time and that next year to write what was my first book, The Fitness Mindset. And then when that book did so well, it was 16 weeks on the Amazon bestseller list, went bestseller on all the lists that went out. It did way better than I ever dreamed of. But I got this itch that something's not right. I don't feel fully fulfilled. And that's when endurance kind of came into my space. I was at an event in Amsterdam, the Tony Robbins Business Mastery. And I met a friend of mine who's since become a very close personal friend, Tom Otten, who was telling me about this crazy race. First, he said, well, I'm an ultramarathon runner. And I said, what's an ultramarathon? I was like, I don't know what that is. And he goes, well, it's anything over a marathon. So anything over 26.2 miles. I was like, okay, that's cool. And he was telling me about this race in the Sahara Desert. He said, as well, it's six back-to-back marathons through the Sahara and it's self-sufficient. So you have to carry all your food on your back. You have to carry all your equipment on your back and you have to have a venom pump within arm's reach at all times in case you get bitten by a snake. And I was listening to him going, that sounds crazy. But I was hooked. I was literally like, I, know, this is, kind of this awesome is, too. I, I was like, that's <laughs> insane. And I missed Anthony, the whole next speaker who came out to talk marketing or whatever he was doing. Cause I was on Google going flights to the Sahara, checking out Marathon to Saab. And then I got home and kind of didn't really think too much about it until about two months later. And this is 2017. And I was sitting, this is when my Instagram was starting to grow. And I had a, you know, I'm not sure it was on it at the time, 40,000 people, 50,000 people. It's grown considerably since then. But I was putting up a lot of motivational content and I was hovering over a post, Anthony, that was just one of those 2017 motivational quotes. It was like, behind every fear is a person you want to be. And I hovered over that post and went, you fucking hypocrite. I was like, you can't post that. You literally have been terrified when you heard about this race and thought you couldn't do it. And now you're calling people out on social media to go and attack the fears and do all this, you know, this is how you should live. And I felt this huge disconnection and I didn't post it. And I went home and I signed up to that race in, which was August of 2017. And I put a story in my second book, Rewire Your Mindset, that I did my first ever run. I wasn't, I'm not a runner. I came from a sports background, bodybuilding background. Like I'm five foot eight, 85 kilos. I'm not sure what that is in pounds, but I'm quite, I'm short and stocky. I'm built like a hobbit. Like I'm not built to run ultra marathons. <laughs> and I went and did my normal workout after I signed up, my chest, tricep, shoulder workout. And then I hopped on a treadmill and set it to 16 kilometers per hour. I didn't know, Anthony, if that was fast. I didn't know if that was slow. It was just, it was the speed. And I nearly got sick. I did two kilometers and I nearly spewed. And I went back to the dressing room and had my head in my hands. And when you break down six back-to-back marathons, that works out at 250 kilometers. And I was after getting sick after two kilometers. And I couldn't figure out 
oh my God, how am I going to do another 248 kilometers of this? I'm just, <laughs> I'm not going to be able. But anyways, I got out of my own head, decided that I had to focus on what I call a pyramid of prioritization. There was no point worrying about running six marathons if I can't run one. So I set that as the goal. So several months later, I signed up and started training for the Dubai marathon. So I flew out to Dubai from Ireland. I had a backpack and a weighted vest or a weighted bag, and I ran the Dubai marathon in 2018. And that set me up for Marathon to Saab, the six back-to-back marathons six months later, which was a life-changing experience for me. And we can get more into that as we go along. And off the back of that, I got such a shift and paradigm shift and perspective shift in my life because I, I felt like I felt it's such a trite cliche, but Anthony, I felt unstoppable when I came back from that because I didn't believe I could do it until I had done it. And I would have, if you had given me any excuse the week before to bottle out of it and pull out of it, I would have taken it. I would have ripped your hand off for it because I was so afraid before I went, but got through it, did it. And then 2019, I did what was definitely my hardest task of all time as hard as the Sahara was it was nothing compared to the Arctic I ran 230 kilometers to the Arctic circle and that was unbelievably difficult I tore my Achilles 86 kilometers from the end of that race at the end of that run and every step Anthony felt like somebody was shooting me with a cattle prod and it was the most pain I've ever felt in my life bar none now I got to the end I finished and we can get into how I potentially managed to get through that because sometimes I don't know. And when I reflect on it, I can think it put me out for six months when I got back. I wasn't able to train properly or run for six months when I got back, but I got through it. I finished it and then kind of just went into that world. So I ran my first 100 mile ultramarathon the year later in 2020, the jackpot 100 in Las Vegas, and have been doing kind of endurance based events since because it's kind of the thing that gives me something to train for something I'm interested in doing, pushing my body to see how far it can potentially go. I use a lot of the biohacks that help me, the the sleep hacks, the jumping in and out of ketosis based on training for an event, different things that help me. So it's something that I, again, a very long winded way of saying how I got from there to here. Uh, but that's the kind of the, 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 the long version or the shortened version of what was several years uh, to where I'm at today. Wow. That is insane and amazing. Like awesome. I love I love the way that you've sort of cultivated this warrior mindset by jumping, you know, into the fires of discomfort and and you know, really pushing your body to to its physical and mental and probably even spiritual limits in, in some capacities, because you're doing this stuff like you got no teammates, you're on your own, and you're in these in like just harsh environments, unrelenting, unforgiving terrain, whether it's insanely hot like the Sahara or insanely cold like the Arctic. And we're going to kind of unpack all of that. I think before we do, a lot of our listeners could probably relate to being in a job or coming to the realization that you are in a job that that is not aligned with, uh, as as you put it, like your metrics of success. And um, maybe they haven't, you know, maybe someone hasn't even thought about what their metrics of success are, but I experienced the same thing. Like I've been all about like health and fitness. I did it a lot through training uh, and, and, you know, maximize my performance for soccer. And then, but at the time, you know, I graduated college in 2004. You, nobody was making money training people, you know? And I just thought about it very simply as I want to have a family and, you know, be able to support them. I can't be a personal trainer. I can't be doing health and fitness. So I got into finance 
And much like you, shortly thereafter, I was like, this is it. This is finance. You know, it made me realize that, wow, I really, I really love interacting with people and, and serving people, you know, and adding value to people's lives. And I was like a number cruncher and I was putting people in debt, basically. You know, we were, we were financing $100 million office buildings in downtown Chicago, but it was all sort of like I was doing that commercial mortgage-backed securities, which if, you, if you've seen the movie The Big Short with Steve Carell, uh, my it's like yeah. it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme. You know what I mean? And it was like it was glamorous and this and that. But I'm like, I'm like part of the Ponzi scheme. And, and I just talked to Doug Knoll on the podcast and he had a similar realization. He was a lawyer. And he's like he, he reflected after like a decade of being a lawyer. He's like, how many people have I really served? And he realized it was like five, <laughs> you know, and he's like, I need to make a change, man. I want to serve people. I want to be I, I want to be helping people at a real on a real level and making people's lives better. So like. Are, are there any, cause that's a challenging moment when you've invested so much, when you've got some of that, some justification for that sunk cost fallacy around mm-hmm. something that you put so much time and energy and effort into. And then all of a sudden you just have this aha moment that like, shit, this ain't it. You know, like how, how did you navigate that? And what would be your advice to someone listening who maybe through their own evolution or through an epiphany realizes that they're not in a situation in terms of their vocation that is aligned with their metrics of success? It's a great question, Anthony. And I think there's definitely an element of self-awareness that's important for people and self-awareness based on their own environment and situation. I would be quite risk averse by nature. I know coming from the financial background, it's one of the first things you do with people. But just in general, I'm quite risk averse by nature. Sounds funny when I run through the Arctic and the Sahara, but (laughs) it's domain dependence clearly. But I... It took me two years to make the jump from working full-time as an elementary school teacher to personal training because I was afraid of the uncertainty around it. And I had a lot of fear disguised as practicality as well, where I didn't think it was quote-unquote practical to leave a quote-unquote safe and secure job like being a teacher, something that's you know mildly respected, doesn't pay you superly well, but it's somewhat respected and can be seen as safe and secure for something as has peaks and valleys like personal training or anything within the health and fitness industry. So the reason it took me two years was down to that fear. And what I did and something that I offer as a potential avenue for people is you give yourself a timeline, a runway of time in which you're going to make the transition. So I use personal training as a side hustle for two years. And I said that once I got to the point that my personal training income was equal or over what I was earning as a teacher, I would make the jump and I would leave it full time. And that's what I did. And that gave me one, a lot of confidence in myself that I could get better at my craft because I was getting paid well and I was improving the more people I worked with. But it also gave me that little bit of what I needed at the time as a financial security blanket underneath me, that I had enough savings that, you know, I have six months of, even when I made the transition in January 2014 to full-time, I have six months of if nobody pays me, I can still live. I can pay my bills. I can do everything and I will be fine. And that helped me. Some people listening will be in a different scenario. They'll have kids, they'll have a mortgage, they'll have all these other priorities. That means that they can't make that jump tomorrow, even if they're not risk averse like me. But what I would say is getting your ladder to keep my analogy, 
you're better to be at the ladder against the right or the bottom of the ladder against the right wall than halfway or at the top of the ladder against the wrong wall. And whether it takes you and you decide to make a change in a transition now off the back of this podcast and you hand in your notice tomorrow and go, I'm going all in on this, or you say, well, two years from now, three years from now, and you hold yourself accountable to that date. Very important because it's too easy to, you know, use the future and, and all these things. And if you don't have a tangible target in the future, it becomes never. I would consider looking at it in a, you don't need to make this change straight away. I didn't. I had to give myself that two-year runtime. But, but you were taking action that whole time. I mean, you were, you were a personal trainer. You were doing both. You know, you weren't like, I set this goal. And then I sat there practicing the secret for two years. Yeah, like the fucking law of attraction without yeah. action is a distraction. Like it, it's <laughs> the high end of you have to take the action steps. Now you don't have to take huge action steps, but you have to be doing something. Like I, I have a big, like I have one of my best friends who's not allowed to talk to me about writing his book anymore. I've banned him because he's been writing a book for seven years. Like I've, ri- yeah. I've literally written three and published four books in the time that it took him to do. He hasn't done his first one. And that's not as a, a humble brag on my side to be like, I'm better than you. I can write, but he's not writing. He's not taking yep. action steps in it. So now the he's not allowed to bring it to me. Give, it was probably giving him the, the, the false sense of accomplishment and actually taking off some of the pressure that would otherwise go toward doing the shit and writing the book. Oh, you, I couldn't have said it better myself. Like that's what happens to people when they live in that, what I call in books, your future self, when you live in that, that's a catch 22 because that can be very powerful, powerful in terms of visualization on where you want to go, but it can also lead to this false action bias where you feel like you've done something when you actually haven't just because you thought about it. And I think that's an important thing to catch. And if you're someone who wants to transition out of their job into something that brings more inspiration to your life, or in my case, I make a lot of decisions based on, well, what do I jump out of bed every morning for? What do I love to do? What would I do for free to keep the analogies that I used from my mom earlier? That's kind of my metric. So I use that consistently, even to this day, that was 2012, we had this conversation initially. So 10 years later, I still use that when I'm making business decisions, when I'm deciding where to speak or what to do with my podcast or my programs or my courses or who I work for. It all falls into that bracket of what would I do for free? Now, not everyone's in that area now, but it's a North Star that I used at the very start that I still use to this day. What's up, guys? It's Anthony here, and I interrupt this broadcast because I just opened up the coolest package. It was uh, it was one of the first packages that arrived at our PO box, and it included a bottle of uh, CBD infused hydrating body lotion from it looks like American Shaman is the company. And I haven't tried it yet, so I can't necessarily vouch for it, but it looks pretty dope. Yeah, a Liberty Lives sticker, a whole bunch of USA stickers, and uh, red, white, and blue, and Home of the Brave, and that sort of thing. A $75 gift card to Lowe's, which is pretty awesome, and a little note, cheers to making your own furniture. And then I've got a cool... Uh, envelope with a letter here that I haven't opened, but I will open on the air. And uh, if if it's cool with the author, um, 
share it with you guys. And, you know, if, it, if there's a question or two on there that I could help with, be happy to do that. So um, I love this. I absolutely love getting stuff in the mail and uh, with all the digital censorship and everything that's been going on. It's it's a great way for us to be able to stay in touch and open those lines of communication. And just being real with you guys, I've been putting a ton of my resources into our North Carolina property. We had to buy an excavator. We have put in over a mile of roads into mountains at 3,500 feet that are filled with like thick, almost rainforest. Uh, topography. And now we're kind of getting to the point where I could build a home and I don't, I don't have a, you know, a couple million dollars in the bank, but I'm, you know, I'm comfortable. I live good. I have everything I need and I'm super, super blessed. Um, But if you guys feel compelled to contribute, if you feel that there has been a contribution to the value that you have received from the Biohacking Secrets Show, the Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus, our coaching program, anything that we've put out there, some of our videos, whatever it is, if it's uplifted your life physically, mentally, spiritually, and you feel that the value that you have received exceeds the value that you've given um, and you have the means to do so, I'd love to open up uh, an opportunity for you to send in a donation that will go towards me building my house in North Carolina. And cash is amazing. Silver from Gainesville Coins is amazing. And really anything that you feel called to share. And if you're not in a position to share, obviously, like I'm not... I'm not trying to put you in a situation at all. That's not the purpose here. It's only if if there's abundance in your life, if you feel that the value that you've received from the things that we've put out exceeds the value that you've given, then uh, you can send in some something cool along with a handwritten letter to P.O. Box 7151, Deerfield, Illinois, 60015. That's P.O. Box 7151, Deerfield, one word, Illinois, 60015. And uh, if you do do so, like, yes, silver from Gainesville coins is amazing. Yes, Cash is amazing, and I can use those things to help build a house in North Carolina. Oh, and a super dope biohacking gym that, uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot that we're going to do with that, with our events and with our coaching program and everything that you guys will see. But I got to build a biohacking gym and a home, and that's what your donations would be going towards. Um, But if you do do that, please include a handwritten letter. Share a little bit of your story, some of the ways that your life has changed or improved. If you have any questions, you can include one or two of those in the letter and I will answer them on the air. And I think it's an awesome way for us to stay connected, stay in touch, avoid some of the online censorship. And uh, and you guys could help me build my house and biohacking, biohacker gym. It'd be amazing. It's a win-win for everybody. So, yes, appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for listening and being part of this journey. Much love to you. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. Can you talk a little bit about how challenging those two years were? Because, like, 
I was in a similar situation when, you know, I was, I was doing personal training. I was coaching clients. And then when we were going to launch biohacking secrets, my business partner is Russell Brunson, the, the founder of click funnels. And I was like, all right, bro, what do I do? And he goes, write a book. It's like, I'm like waking up at four 30 in the morning already, you know, got my first client at six, I'm going all day. And I'm like, when the F am I going to write a book? <laughs> you know? So for a period of time afterwards, it was just whenever I had a free moment. You know, and there was there was a lot of uh, espresso involved and things like that in order, you know, like where sleep took took got shortchanged. I had to be able to allocate that towards this creation process. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how challenging those two years were, what sacrifices needed to be made. And like one thing that you sort of touched on, but this could be a nice um, integration here is like you were saving up that money. So you had a little bit of runway. And I think a lot of people psychologically have such a hard time with a perceived step back in their quality of life. But very often that is necessary during these these moments where we're going after our dreams, you know, where you look and say, okay, what do I actually have to spend week in, week out, day in, day out, month in, month out? Is there are there areas that I can downsize to decrease? That those expenses. So I'm not a slave. So the things I own don't end up owning me and keeping me trapped in something that I don't love doing. So maybe you could talk about how challenging those two years were, what sacrifices you needed to make. Uh, what did you do in order to like keep your expenses minimal or, or, you know, to, to help make that transition happen sooner as opposed to later? Yeah, I think those golden handcuffs are a big thing for sure that, you know, buying stuff that you don't need to impress people you don't like, like it was a waste of time. And again, I've fallen victim to that myself in the past. And that's just my own insecurity projected into the things that I'm spending money on. To be honest, and I need to be completely honest here, Anthony, I didn't find the two years challenging. I found them tiring, but they weren't <laughs> challenging. And, and I need to make that, that, I need to make the differentiation because I found the three months and four months of teaching before I started personal training challenging because Mm. I thought I was stuck and I felt like I was stuck. And that was challenging because I had this, this is going to sound so foreign to people and it's so bad. And I, I have said it before on my podcast, there was mornings when I would go to work and I was, you know, a 23 year old kid. Even before that, I was 22 when I qualified. I would be walking to work or biking to work. And there was days when I wanted to just get clipped by a bus. And not that I wanted to kill myself or anything like that, but just get hurt enough that I wouldn't have to go to work that day and potentially that week. And and that's direct feedback that what you're doing is not what you should be doing. And I found that challenging because I had spent, and you mentioned the sunk cost fallacy earlier, I had spent so much time, energy, and money becoming a teacher and I had all this external validation that I was unaware of because I was afraid of what people would say, my friends, my family, if I left this job, particularly after all my talk that this is what I was going to do. Yeah. I, I found that challenging. The two years of working as both was tiring because you were working all the time, but it was also very inspiring because I knew this other thing I'm doing in the evenings, I love doing. And every time someone handed me money for personal training, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do it. 
It was one of those, which in hindsight, looking back, if somebody said that to me now, I'm like, you should go all in with that. Like it's hindsight's 2020. At the time, I didn't have that. And I didn't have the people around me who were in a similar position who could offer that advice. I, could, I should have and would have cut my learning curve considerably more if I knew then what I know now. But I didn't know then what I know now, hence all the mistakes I made. But I didn't find it as challenging because I knew it was what I wanted to do over the long term. And although similar to you, there was a lot of early mornings, a godly amount of caffeine and espresso taken to get (laughs) through days. And I sacrificed things like sleep, finances, nights out, even my own workouts to a degree, because I had this greater thing that I wanted to do. And I preach something opposite now, but I'm in a different stage of my life now. Similar to you, Anthony, I don't non-negotiables now is high sleep quality and my food Mm. quality and my workouts. They're all non-negotiables. They're things that are bedrocks of my life now. But when I was in my early twenties and I was trying to get this thing that I wanted, I was willing to make those sacrifices then and there. And I would love to be the secret guy who's like, just wish for it and it'll come. Just, just sit there and be on your couch and dream and visualize it. And like you should visualize it. That's an important part of the process. You should be able to see where it is that you want to go. But there is a part and there's a time and a place where you just have to grind. You just have to suck it up and you just have to do it. You won't have to do it all the time. I'm in a very fortunate position now that I pick and choose what I want to do. I don't have any issue with financial security and haven't had it in the last several years. Don't worry about paying bills, something that I once worried about. Don't have that. Don't worry about time. I have most of my time back now because I have a great team that work for me. I don't worry about you know my relationships because I get to spend time with my daughter, my partner, my loved ones. They're all things that are of a higher priority now, but it came from the grit on the front end. It came from just doing and grinding and getting the things I had to get done when I needed to do them. But you're not going to do that forever. So if you're struggling, it's like the Winston Churchill quote, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going. You just keep going until you get past that point and it will get easier. Yeah, I love that. And, and you know, so there's, I go to a good amount of masterminds. I used to go to more, but you know, you, it's very easy to just get too much information and too many different strategies that you'd like, you come home and you want to implement like 30 things. And it's, it's, it's more of a distraction than actually beneficial once you got your business going. So I don't go to them as much now, but there was this term at masterminds that I was taught called uh, the, the pack your bags moment. And it's basically you show up from the very beginning with an awareness that you are looking for that one piece of information, that one piece of advice, mm-hmm. that one strategy where if you packed your bags in that very moment and left and implemented it, your whole business could change, you know? And I sort of look at you hearing that, uh, you know, about that ultra marathon. I think it was the the Sahara one with, you know, where you got to pack the snake venom and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that was like your pack, pack your bags moment. You're like, I, I want to sign up for this now. I don't even need the rest of this business mastery thing, or maybe I do, but I'd rather do this. You know what I mean? And like, how, how did you, um, cause I'm sure, I don't know if you were aware of that term, pack your bags moment. I wasn't until somewhat recently, but how did you have, it, it seems like you're a guy who's pretty in touch with your heart, right? And your emotions and the, the emotional response that you get to certain things right? Is that something that you've always had? Is that something that you developed? Uh, you know, how did you learn to like, be like, whoa, this is it. I'm on it. You know what I mean? Where you're signing up then and there while you're still sitting in business mastery, I believe it was. 
I love that question. No, I learned it a hundred percent. I natural intuition isn't a strong suit. And I think we all probably have a certain level of it. And then we end up relearning it. We are, we unlearn the other thought processes that, you know, we went away from at some point. I had used different language, although I love that the pack your bags moment. I just use that, you know, what excites me like that. That's a metric that I use to this day when I'm making decisions based on what race I should do. It, it was the decision I made when I met my partner. It was like, this felt different. This was exciting. This felt like a different feeling to the other relationships and the other people that I had been dating at the time. The races were the same. The business decisions I make, the things that excite me are the avenues I go down. The same with the topics of books. I've written three books the fitness mindset, rewire your mindset, the keen edge. And I'm writing my fourth one, which now is kind of taking on a, a self-discipline, mental resilience, mental toughness angle, because that's what I feel is exciting me right now, particularly the misconceptions around it. I once had the grind it out and grit mentality that, you know, to the man with the hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And I would apply that philosophy to everything when sometimes building mental resilience is down to letting shit go and dealing with anxiety and being a bit more self-compassionate with yourself. And there's a time and a place when you just need to toughen up and just grit it out and bear it. So I tend to follow that process on what's exciting me. And it's similar to the pack your bags moment when you get that right. If I just went and did this now, my life would be better. And I've got better at listening to that voice and I've got better with taking action on it. I think that's probably the disconnection. I think there was a time and a place in my life when I would have things and my language was different. My internal dialogue and limiting self-talk was things like that's something other people do. So Mm -hmm. I always wanted to do a bodybuilding show. I grew up following Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was a massive Schwarzenegger fan. Me too. Yeah. And I was like, I love that. I would love to do a bodybuilding show, but my language was that's something other people do. Mm. And marathons were similar. I would see people running 26.2 miles and go, wow, that's amazing. But that's something other people do. And that's just another disguised internal dialogue way of saying that you're afraid to do something. So a combination between getting better with checking in with that internal voice or that inner dialogue and what excites me mixed with getting out of my own way. And, you know, if it's a case of feeling the fear and doing it anyways, or whatever it is that you need to get over it, that has got easier the more I've done it over the years, because it's definitely not a natural intuition. And if it was, I lost it somewhere along the way for several years and ended up getting it back. 100%. I think that's probably very encouraging to our listeners who who may feel like, oh man, I don't even know what excites me. I'm so caught up in this routine that I'm partially responsible for, but day in, day out, week in, week out, there's not a lot of stuff that gets me fired up. You know, and and part of this journey, I believe I had to do it myself, too, is rebuilding a life that you love and trying new things, you know, not not just sitting there like making lists and ruminating in your head, like make a list, schedule that shit and get out there and try it and throw away the stuff you don't like and keep the stuff that makes your heart sing and, and you know, lights your soul up. You know, and that's kind of how you rebuild a life, but it doesn't happen watching Netflix and, and staying caught up in, you know, the shitty job or the or, or, or the, the, the relationship that's not working, you know, where the waters run dry. So, Brian Keene, let's imagine this is a movie and it's, it's, it's a movie that's part of the story of your life. Right. And the movie starts out at the climax of 
the the most challenging, gritty, mentally, spiritually unrelenting thing you've ever experienced in your life. Can you sort of tell us the story of where you were, what was going on, what was the dialogue, you know, happening between your ears and how you were able to uh, persevere if you that, persevered? <laughs> that that's a phenomenal question. I've never heard that one, Anthony. I think that's I've never heard it outside of of this and your podcast. I would bring you 86 kilometers from the end of the Arctic Circle when I hear a snap, bang, and a tear in my Achilles. And there was a period of about four miles where I had to go and I'm in the middle of the Arctic and I have my friend Simon who was there alongside me. The two of us did it together just for support for one another. And he was looking at me and I said, mate, you're going to have to go on ahead because I couldn't keep up with him. Like he was just moving mm-hmm. at normal pace. I was like, mate, I can't move. And it was four miles from what would have been a, a so in the Arctic, you have the local Sami tribe, the indigenous reindeer tribe, and they set up teepees every 10 miles or so so that you can give, they'll give you boiled water because obviously all the water in the Arctic freezes because of the mm-hmm. temperature. So they boil the water for you and they give it to you. And it was four miles away from this teepee and I was moving slow, slowly. So the Arctic is a very unforgiving place. So if you picture the Sahara Desert, the Sahara is hot and it's uncomfortable, but it's manageable. The Arctic is kind of like this Goldilocks zone. If you're going too slow, you end up running the risk of frostbite and that becomes its own problem. If you go too quickly, you sweat and your risk of hypothermia goes up. So you're in this Goldilocks zone in the Arctic where you need to stay at a certain level of core temperature and you need to keep your not sweating too much, but not moving too slowly that you run the risk of frostbite. And I was moving so slowly that my eyelids froze over. So there's a photo I had on my Instagram, because obviously there's so much water in your eyes, which I'd never really Mm -hmm. thought about until I went to the Arctic. But my eyelids froze over because I couldn't blink. So I was four miles moving so slowly at a snail's pace, pulling and dragging my leg behind me. And I got to this teepee and there was a medic there. And she looked at my Achilles and said, look, if you keep going, this could rupture. And then you're out of here in a helicopter. And I looked at Simon and he had, he told me this on reflection afterwards. He said, I told the medic, you're gone. You're not going to finish in this. You're out of here. And I said, okay, if that happens, that happens. If, if, if they have to call in the helicopter, cool. If it ruptures, it ruptures, it goes. Mm-hmm. And I got a little bit of heat around my eyeballs so that I was able to blink again because they were bloodshot. I hadn't blank. I, I wasn't able to blink for about half an hour before I got to the TP without that, that, that real strained blink so they were completely bloodshot they looked like you know i was a zombie in a movie and i took some painkillers which work amazingly well for me because i don't take painkillers generally so i had codeine tablets and painkillers and basically dragged my leg for 86 kilometers and the inner dialogue for that was just a repeated mantra that pain is temporary this will go away and i repeated that for 86 kilometers, every step was, this is temporary. There will be a time and a place when I don't have a torn Achilles and I'm sitting at home and I'm watching a, a football game or a soccer game and I'm fed and I'm warm and I'm around family and friends and things will be fine. But that's not now. Right now, this fucking sucks. And I can acknowledge the fact that this is really difficult, 
but I reject that it's going to stop me doing it. And I reject that it's going to hold me back when it comes to hitting the finish line. And I think it's important to understand because some people think that can be a bit sadistic. And to a degree it is when I say it like that, because when you think that, Luke, you could be pulled out of the Arctic on a helicopter if you rupture a tendon, most people would say that's stupid. You have a family, you have a daughter, don't do stupid things. But when you're in an environment like that, you're kind of gone into primitive mode. You're in a different place. You're in a different mindset. You're in a different space completely. And I'd spent years as someone who has what I call a bottler nature. I tend to back out of things and I can't give myself a plan B because I tend to take it. If I give myself an out, I tend to take the easy option. So one of my prerequisites before I do a race is there is no plan B. I'm either being dragged out of here in a helicopter or I'm finishing it. And there's nothing in between. And Mm. that mindset is to stop me taking that plan B. Mm. And when I got to the finish line, I was elated. Now, I didn't get the same unstoppable feeling and that limitation being smashed that I got in the Sahara, but I did get a completely new relationship with pain and how much I could physically, emotionally, or potentially mentally handle because I was a lot stronger than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody has a version of this. And this sounds intense and extreme, but when I see, Anthony, people who have had children die or a mother or a father that they're close to pass, that's hard. That's difficult. Like they're very, they're things that I look at and go, wow, you are so much stronger than you thought or anyone thought you were. And going through the Arctic gave me that. I always had a fear of my mother dying. That was one of my biggest fears. She's been the closest person to me, my biggest fan from day one, and has literally been my rock and my pillar. And I always had this fear of something happening to her. And when I got back from the Arctic, I had a completely different mindset. I thought that I actually need to be the oak in the storm if something bad happens. You know, Jordan Peterson says, be the strongest person at your father's or mother's funeral. And that was my mindset coming back. And my relationship with pain had completely changed. And I wouldn't change it for anything. That was life-changing for me. It put me out for six months. I was literally like, I had the biggest chest and arms ever after six months because that's all I could do. Like I couldn't do any lower body stuff. I couldn't run. <laughs> like I was literally in the, in the gym just pumping out the chest press and do bicep curls <laughs> yeah. for six months. But uh, out, guns out. Yeah, 100%. People are like, oh yeah, you got big. I'm like, yes, I haven't ran in six months or moved. Um, but <laughs> you should see it, my legs. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I was just like, wearing the baggy trousers. I was totally fine. I was like, yeah, don't look, don't look. Uh, but, but yeah, that, that's the moment I would take you to 100%. And if you would ask me five years ago, six years ago, I would have said unthinkable for me to do that. And my second book, Rewire Your Mindset, where I talk about my experience in the Arctic in particular, I tell people that. Like the reason that I'm quite mentally strong now and mentally resilient and mentally tough is because I'm not naturally like that. The analogy I use in the book is it's like the overweight person in high school who's now really lean and muscular, but they know they could always go back to that Mm -hmm. overweight state because they've been there. I feel like the mentally tough equivalent of that, somebody that's built a mental resilience, but isn't like that by default. It could always slip back if I don't stay on top of it. hundred percent. So this you know, I was going to ask you why it was so important to you to finish, but it sounds like it was because you would recognize this pattern in yourself where a lot of times historically, if there was a way out, you would take it. So you 
safeguarded yourself against that by saying anything I commit to is getting done no matter what, unless I'm completely physically unable to do it. Like, you know, my body shuts down tendon ruptures and I'm getting choppered out of there. Is that accurate? Yes. On top of, I couldn't look at my daughter in 10 years time when she'd ask about that race. And if I didn't finish it, I told her that I bottled out because something could go wrong. And Mm -hmm. I had this weird moment in the Arctic when my daughter Holly was four at the time. And I kind of had this, I won't say mild psychedelic moment, but I suppose I was in so much pain. I may as well have been living that moment that she was 16, 17 coming to me when something difficult was happening And I was telling her to persevere through, that it will get easier and it will pass. And if she ever asked, well, why didn't you finish that race in the Arctic? Which I'm sure she probably wouldn't, but this is where my mind was at the time. And she said, well, why didn't you finish? And I'd say, well, because it was too sore. Because I I was in pain. That's not a fucking answer. Like, no, Mm -hmm. you could have kept going. You could have. You could have dragged your leg. You could have done it. And I knew myself I could have done it. And that's what kept me. I had a bigger why. Like, I didn't want to look her in the face and be like, yeah, I tapped out because it was too difficult. Like, that's not an answer. That's not the lesson I want to give her. That's not the person I want to be. It's not the dad I want to be or the person I want to be. And that replayed in my mind. Hence why I kept repeating pain is temporary. This will go away. And that, on top of what you said, was my probably stronger reason for getting to the finish line. I love that. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in testing myself and doing things to myself that are so challenging that there's nothing someone else could do to me Mm. that I haven't already faced or overcome. And there was like a funny moment actually on Sunday, I was at, there's this place I love going called uh, the Chicago sweat lodge. And they've got like a super hot Turkish bath. That's like a wet sauna. They've got a super hot uh, Russian dry sauna. And then they've got a 37 degree cold plunge pool. Right. And, and so we're in the sauna and I had just bought one of those silly sauna hats. You know what I mean? That you'll see like the Russian guys wearing, I'm, I'm rocking that thing in there. And this dude walks in and he's got a heart rate monitor chest strap and like, you know, one of the Garmin watches. And I was like, I was like, bro, I have been wanting to see what my heart rate's at in here for so long. I'm like, what, what kind of numbers are you putting out? He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm usually like 140 to 155 when I'm in the sauna. But if you, you know, if you pour the cold water on yourself or if you do a cold plunge, it quickly comes back down and, you know, you recover. And, and I was like, all right, fascinating, you know? And so we have this conversation. He's like, yeah, he's like, I'm trying to get rid of these man tits. He's like, I used to be really good at soccer. And, and I was like, oh, I played soccer too. And, 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 you know, we're talking about our past. Well, uh, we both get out and we're getting into the 37 degree cold plunge pool. Right. And, uh, no words were spoken, but he goes to one side, I'll go to the other side. And he's like, man, he goes, I'm, I'm like in the cult. I'm in the cold plunge cult. He's like, I've gone nuts for these things. I'm like, me too, bro. I'm like Chicago. There was one Chicago winter where I did like a hundred cold plunges in Lake Michigan in, in, in the freezing water. And, uh, and I'm like, I love it. I'm like, and he's like, yeah, it doesn't get any easier though. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And then we both get quiet. And for some reason I got this feeling where I was like, I think this guy's going to try to out cold plunge me. So I didn't say anything, but I was like, I guess we'll see. I don't know. It's just like a feeling that came over. You know what I mean? And so I'm sitting there and I relax and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, he for sure is, you know, like people are coming in and going out and it's 37 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is pretty freaking cold. And guys will come in, they'll dump their head and they'll leave. 
And we're both just sitting there. And then I said to myself, and I'm like, all right, I'm willing to die in here. I'm like, I don't think he is. And so I just relaxed as much as possible. And I'm like, I'm not fucking moving until he gets out. I'm like, I don't care if that's five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, you know, we'll see. We were in there for at least 15 to 20 minutes before he tapped out. And I was just, I closed my eyes and I was just zoned out. And like, I'm like, when I feel the water moving because he's moving to get out, I'll give him another 30 seconds or a minute just so it's not obvious I'm right behind him. And then I'll go out. And I got out and it was like, I needed like a fucking hour nap afterwards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, I, I'm like driving home and I'm tired as shit. And I'm like, that was the longest cold plunge of my life at that temperature. You know what I mean? But the satisfaction I got from being a fucking psycho and and being like, you know, going all in to where I'm willing to die in here. Are you? You know? And uh, I don't know. It's just a fun moment. And, and, it, and it, for me, like, I love those opportunities to challenge and push ourselves because you can't really do it to yourself to the same degree as with someone else pushing you. You know what I mean? They're, your your competitors are your co-conspirers and, and they bring things out of you that maybe you would not be able to summon. Was it, it were it just you in the cold plunge pool? You know, I'd never stand there that long by myself. Right. And I don't think he would have stayed in there that long by himself. You know, now people will be like, oh, that's not safe. And, 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 and whatever. I took an hour nap and was fine. You know, I've done hundreds and hundreds of cold plunges. It wasn't a big deal. And I felt great the next day. So it was just kind of like it, it sort of illustrates that there is no plan B. We have to be doing these hard things. Uh, we have to be doing them to ourselves and then looking for fun, sometimes impromptu opportunities to leverage the uh, inspiration from others that that um, elevate us to levels that perhaps we could not get to on our own. A hundred percent. It's so funny you said that. Like a, a philosophy that I've been a long-term subscriber to is to choose your suffering. It's a very Jungian philosophy that, you know, when you, you can choose, it, for me, and I love cold plunges. I'm a big fan. I did so much cold exposure in the lead up to the Arctic and got all these secondary benefits that I've since kept similar to the Sahara. I did so much heat exposure and got started to learn about, you know, BDNF and brain drive neurotropic factor and all these things that came and found that my learning and everything was enhanced from it. So I got these kind of secondary benefits, but the choosing your suffering, something I've really struggled with Anthony is I have really bad by default, a personality type that leans towards anxiety and mental health issues. And I've spent years. You too, brother. Me too. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we do. It's funny. I heard you saying on a podcast about biohacking and that when people find that their biology or their bodies letting them down, they end up finding biohacks for that reason. And mm -hmm. I think mental health definitely led me down that path to, well, what's going on with my body? Like, wh where's, wh where's my food letting me down? Where's my recovery letting me down? Why do I mentally feel this way? But choosing your suffering is something that I found helps a lot. And cold exposure, just as you said it there, I find such a huge mental health relief from the exposure to cold that you can choose to either be anxious day to day, or you can choose to suck it up and do your five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, probably on the excessive side for most people. But as you've proved, Anthony, it can be done. And you're choosing your suffering in that moment. I think every workout we do is the same. You're choosing your suffering in the moment to feel better, you know, in a very near future. And it's important to bring it all the way back around as to why you're doing it. When I think about your story in the cold plunge and the cold water, 
you have a why. It's an, it's an external competitiveness with somebody that's there, which isn't surprising. I played football, I played soccer as well. So I get it. It's a sports thing that mm-hmm. pulling out the competitiveness from somebody else, but you can get that internal why and that driver from anywhere. And I've used external things in the past. It can be a little bit of a hot burning fuel, particularly when you're pulling out some of the negative stuff to fuel you and drive you. But you can also use a lot of the positive things. And, you know, I use my daughter, my family all the time. What kind of dad do I want to be? And do I want to be someone who gives up on things because they're difficult? And that's more of a positive things that can drive me. But I think it's all the same. And it's not a right or wrong for people listening. It's about finding what drives you, what motivates you, what's your why, and then applying that base to get through on whatever it is that you're looking to do. 100%. I think a lot about what, what am I going to tell my kids? You know, the stories I'm going to tell my children. The, uh, and, and, and the lessons that I want to impart upon them, not verbally, but through my actions, through the way that I lived. And then, and then same thing for my grandkids, right? Going out another generation and, and thinking about that. And when, when they look back at the history of all the things that have happened during our lifetime, how did we handle that shit? You know, how did we show up for the challenges? How did we, how did we live a life that is a shining example of strength and courage and fearlessness and, and, and love um, and gratitude that, is, is, is a, a beacon and, you know, where we become a North star because we're clear on what our North stars are. And we're living this life of, of alignment and embodiment. One thing that I want to mention, because so many people are struggling with mental health issues. Now, first, I think that a lot of men and women who gravitate towards anxiety, it is a manifestation of the fact that they have an increased capacity to handle stress, whether that's stress imparted upon them that that is not by their own choosing or stress that is of their own choosing. However, if there is a life of comfort that is being lived by someone who has a very high capacity to handle stress that exceeds that of what perhaps a more average person could handle, I think that starts to manifest as anxiety and restlessness and discontentment. And as you've mentioned, things like regular training, you know, cold exposure, heat exposure, like we must be the ones to do that to ourselves if we want to find that equilibrium. Uh, otherwise, you know, if, if, if you're living a, a, a Netflix and uh, TV dinner lifestyle, but you're really a warrior at heart, you're going to feel anxious and that may very well be your soul's way of trying to awaken you to the fact that you're living out of alignment. Yeah. It reminds me of the line that I'd rather be a warrior in a garden and garden than a gardener in a war. And mm-hmm. it's, you're setting yourself up for that warrior mindset and handling those day-to-day anxieties. And I have what some have said to me to bring back their words, a little bit of an unconventional approach and assessment of anxiety. I think anxiety is a superpower if you learn to control it. Mm-hmm. And it has a catch-22 and definitely the danger is in the dose. But when you're a type A personality, and I know Anthony listens to the podcast and a lot of your guests are similar, we tend to not struggle with get up and go and doing things because you have that anxiety as you're kind of, it's a like hot coal burning fuel underneath you. Where it becomes a problem is when it starts to impact you in a negative way, affecting your sleep, affecting your relationships, affecting your presentness. 
And that's when you know, well, actually, I need to do things that are going to stay on top of that. And I have a whole range of things that I do that I've mentioned from working out to the cold exposure, to the heat, to journaling, to therapy, something I've dived in and out of, to gratitude lists and gratitude journaling. I found that probably the biggest thing you touched on gratitude earlier. I have one of my friends who he's an IFBB pro bodybuilder, but he's from Nigeria and was smuggled over to Ireland when he was nine. And he's like, I'm too blessed to be stressed, man. Like, <laughs> and, and that always is something I try and adopt because he's right. When you feel so blessed and you're grateful, it's, it's hard to be stressed and it's hard mm. to be anxious. And I find anxiety for most cases, assuming I'm not making crap decisions in my life, which I've done in the past, which has led to anxious decisions, over committing to things, saying yes to too many things, mm -hmm. not being clear on what I should be saying yes to, being a big one. All of those things manifest itself in anxiety and it's direct feedback that I'm going away from my North Star when I'm feeling that way. Sometimes I have to feel the fear and get over it anyways, but you can, there's a difference in the feeling when you're like, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be doing this. This is a waste of my time. I don't want to be with these people. They're emotional vampires, X, Y, Z. You know, you shouldn't be doing it, but you've committed and you've said it. So you use that failure as feedback to not make those decisions going forward. But if you're just getting day-to-day -day anxiety, something that I still get, it washes over like a wave. Like it passes. Mm -hmm. It does. It's similar to the pain in the Arctic, just in a short term, day-to-day -day acute sense. It's a stressor, but it stresses at the minute and it's acute, but it will pass. It's a wave. And mm -hmm. I will instantly stop myself in the moment when I feel anxiety coming on and just make a list of three things I'm grateful for in that moment. And I'm very fortunate that the closest people to me are healthy and well for the most part. I don't have any health problems myself. So in a lot of cases, and not everyone's in that position they're low-hanging fruit that you can focus on right now. There's an old Stoic philosophy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Anthony. Negative visualization, where they picture the things they have now in their life, and then they imagine them being removed from them. So you make a list of all those things that you would give your right hand for if they were taken away. In for my case, it's my partner, my daughter, my relationships with my my parents, my mother in particular, the job I do. There are things that if they were taken away from me now... I would be like, I would give you my right arm to get them back. And the stoic philosophy of negative visualization is you're just sitting there and picturing those things being taken away from you in whatever form that comes into. And it tends to knock you back into a very grateful state. And again, I know it's kind of going left field, but it's a tool that I found very effective for my own personal mental health. So I said I'd share it in case it's useful for the listeners as well. Yeah, I think that is useful. And one of the other things, like, I, you know, I was put on... Prozac at age 19. I didn't know any better. Honestly, I went to college. I started drinking beer and stuff like that, that I hadn't drank before. You know, I'd been a uh, varsity athlete and captain of the soccer team and this and that. So I started drinking some beer and there was, that was, it's depressant, right? I start feeling depressed and, and I just get this script for Prozac sent out to me, never even had to see the doctor. And I was like, all right, I guess this is what you take. I am depressed. This is an antidepressant. That makes sense. And then when I got really into biohacking and stuff and started realizing more of what these what these drugs can do to us long term, then I spent, you know, the next long period of time trying to get off that crap. Mm. But there was a period where I was so depressed that I wanted to die, you know, and the, the, the pain and the, my internal state was was so unbearable. I felt like a prisoner in my own body. And 
it was one very important commitment that any of our listeners who may have struggled with this stuff or be struggling with this stuff, I think this is this is a vital commitment for them to make, which is the commitments that no matter what, you will never take your own life. Because during that period, it was that commitment that forced me to find a way out. And I was exhausted. Everything hurt emotionally, physically, you know, death seemed like the straightest line to get out of that incessant pain every second of every minute of every day. Right. But because I had made that commitment, not just to myself, but to my mother, to my family members who love me, to my future family who I haven't even met yet, you know, that commitment was the reason that I said, I got to figure this out. I got to get myself out of this. And any energy that I did have went towards trying different things and connecting with different people and, and you know, sort of digging my way out of hell, if you will. So I mentioned that because with more and more people that are struggling with mental health issues, anxiety and depression and all this stuff, if you haven't made that commitment, I encourage you to make it now. And I also encourage you to look at this as not something that needs to be done on your own. I, I personally am a Christian. I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I pray every day, usually during my workout <laughs> at some point. And that also was very, very helpful uh, in conjunction with that commitment in getting me out, being able to lean on, on my creator and asking for help and saying, hey, I've been trying to do all this shit myself my, my whole life. God, please help me because I, I really need it right now. You know, so I just wanted to mention that to, to anyone who may be listening to this that either has struggled or uh, is currently struggling or people that may struggle in the future. I, I that, that commitment was so absolutely vital in, in my journey. And uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to encourage anyone to, to make that if they haven't. I just want to really appreciate that authenticity and vulnerability as well, Anthony, as I know it's the guest on the podcast, but that's such a powerful thing to share for people because for the one person, five people, hopefully not more than that, that need to hear it, it can be the difference as someone that's struggling with similar issues myself. So I just want to commend you for saying it as well and, and draw massive respect from my side for that. Awesome. Let's talk about nutrition, brother. Nutrition, nutrition for fat loss. Take it away. The most unintentional left turn we've definitely taken on the podcast. Uh, nutrition for fat loss. To go from a completely different angle. Oh, one transition. This one, thankfully, is a lot more straightforward than all the other things we've discussed and talked about that probably requires a lot more internal reflection and self-awareness. With nutrition for fat loss, I have a philosophy as a coach and as someone that specializes in body composition, so fat loss, building lean muscle tissue, sporting performance, etc. That's where I prioritize with the programs and the people that I work with. For fat loss, it's very straightforward. It's calories in, calories out for the most part. Now, with listeners of this podcast, again, as someone that's listened to several episodes and I'm familiar with the, the other guests that have been on, Anthony, so they're, they're quite educated in terms of listenership. To say it's all calories in and calories out with fat loss isn't necessarily and inherently true because you can eat rubbish food and get yourself into a caloric deficit. And depending on your starting point, you might or might not lose body fat with that. But what I will say is I have a philosophy as a coach that if you can find a nutritional strategy that fits into your lifestyle and schedule, that includes foods that you enjoy 
and that is in alignment with your goals, you will have success with it. And whether that's intermittent fasting, whether that's a ketogenic diet, whether that's a paleolithic diet, whether that's a flexible dieting approach, whether that's a carnivore diet, a vegan diet, if you can hit those three things, you will have long-term success. And then when it comes to fat loss in particular, it's just a, it's manipulating the food choices slightly or manipulating the calories so that you're able to get into that deficit so you can use stored fat for fuel. But I think with nutrition, and you've had people come on talking about plant-based, talking about keto, intermittent fasting, et cetera, all of those diets work really well when it comes to fat loss, like not talking biohacking, not talking energy and cognitive performance, et cetera, purely fat loss, all of those diets and potentially most diets on the market work if you're consistent with it and it ticks those three boxes. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too. One of the biggest frustrations that a lot of people have is, especially when they're getting on a nutrition template and they've been eating garbage for a long period of time, it's hard for them to comprehend how much consistency matters. And that at the very beginning, you may be dealing with fat metabolization issues where someone that can eat a whole bunch of like high, you know, high fat content, animal fats, like, you know, a ribeye steak every day, like Dr. Sean Baker. Right. And, 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 but he's, he's worked this transition. He's been consistent with his nutrition. He's made sure that his body is able to metabolize fats and his liver is working properly. Whereas someone that's been eating a whole bunch of processed carbohydrates and boozing and sitting on their ass, they may not yet be able to handle that same nutritional template. So it's like, it's how can you be consistent enough with some of those templates that you mentioned, like a paleolithic diet or an autoimmune paleo diet or like a carnivore diet, if you're eating like truly organic and grass fed and pastured animals or, you know, even some people cyclical vegan, if you leave room for for healthy animal fats or you supplement wisely and that sort of thing, pescatarian, all of these can work if the quality of the food is good and if you're hitting the right quantity of 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 food but you need to know that you kind of got to go all in at the beginning and give your body some time to heal because it, you've probably been inundating it with anti-nutrients you know these immunogenic and then allergenic compounds for so long it's like you got to give your gut a little break you got to give your cells a little break if your body's hurting that's a pretty good sign you're inflamed at the cellular level and you got to heal a little bit before you can even have more variety. And I think what gets us there is that mental toughness, that commitment to stick to a template out of any of those ones that we mentioned, you know, you yeah. just got to stick to it and be consistent and let your body heal a little bit. And then you'll have more variety and push aside some of these thoughts that I think are self-sabotaging. Like this isn't sustainable. Well, yeah, you're not going to do this forever. You're trying to fix all of the, uh, you're, you're basically trying to correct how off the mark you were for such an extended period of time by tightening things up. And then you find equilibrium, you know, so how do you, how, yeah. yeah. How do you help someone like commit at the beginning and, and really like realize that that is part of their healing journey? You mentioned a very interesting point there, Anthony, about sustainability and sustainability is a super subjective term for people. And mm -hmm. it's one of the first friction points that people will meet me with. And I'm sure several other nutritionists that you've spoken with when it falls out of sometimes it's easier to change somebody's religion than their diet. People are so attached <laughs> to their nutritional philosophy and principles for whatever reason. <laughs> and, and, and they'll jump straight down your throat when you 
give any contradictory evidence yeah. to what they believe. And that's cool. It's part of the process. It's the, the joys of the internet. But what I'd say there is, realize that your interpretation, those listening, me, you, everybody listening, sustainable is subjective. What's sustainable for me might not be sustainable for you. What's sustainable for you might not be sustainable for somebody else. A ketogenic diet is a great example. If you have a strong enough reason, if I'm epileptic, like I'm a big mm. fan of ketogenic diets just for to, just to preface this. I, I will go in and out of ketogenics, uh, in and out of ketosis when I'm preparing for races because it's just, it's a much more metabolic, you listeners are familiar with metabolic flexibility. It's just way more sustainable for the longer distances that I do, particularly when I'm in environments where food is scarce. So mm -hmm. I will dip in and out of ketosis, but I couldn't do it all year round and do it all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't have a big enough reason. I like chocolate. I like beer. I like these foods and these mm -hmm. drinks that will, won't necessarily support me being in a ketogenic state for a long period of time. But when I'm training for a race, I have a big enough reason and a big enough driver to stay on plan. And if I'm epileptic, where my seizures and life quality is greatly enhanced by following a ketogenic diet, that's a much stronger reason than me prepping mm. for a race. And so sustainable mm. for them is different. So I just wanted to preface and underlie this philosophy with nutrition that sustainability is such a subjective term because people can jump down my throat or jump down someone's throat as soon as you try and give any contradictory evidence to any sort of nutritional view that's not the one they currently hold. And what I'd say there is... When you're making a change initially, your starting point matters a great deal. Somebody who wants to try any sort of nutritional plan, whether it's intermittent fasting, ketogenic, paleolithic, plant-based, cyclical plant-based, carnivore, if you're going from eating processed rubbish and, as you said, anti-foods, you are going to struggle if you go all in on one of those diets initially. So you have two choices then. You either suck it up and grind it out until your body adapts, which I don't necessarily recommend, but some people have that all or nothing approach and it works. Or you gradually make small changes that eventually get you to the end point to where you want to be. So you go from having some of those processed foods to making a healthier dinner choice, to having some of those processed foods to now in a week's time making a healthier lunch and dinner choice based on what you want to follow with your new nutritional principle. And you do it gradually over time. I'm not saying one way is better or worse than the other. It's horses for courses. Some people mm -hmm. like the all or nothing. Some people will be better doing it bit by bit. So I think knowing your starting point matters. Someone mm -hmm. like me who dips in and out of a lot of plant-based nutrition. Now I eat a lot more meat now, just because of my training phases and I, I experiment with kind of different macronutrient splits just to see how I'm feeling. But for the most part, I'm mostly plant-based with some meat added in as you go. Very kind of hunter-gatherer style in terms of the, mm -hmm. the approach that I take personally. For no other reason than it's the way I like to eat and I have that little bit of evolutionary biology that I try and stick to in terms of ancestral eating. Purely a personal choice. Body composition mm -hmm. isn't a goal of mine. Performance is when I'm training for a race. Someone like me can drop into ketosis very easily because my baseline is kind of touching on that point anyway. I have a lot of healthy fats in my diet. My protein mm -hmm. can go up and down and my carbs are kind of complex carbs. But I'm not going from eating, you know, frosted flakes and Big Mac for lunch and a poor food choice into ketogenic diets for six weeks of the year or eight weeks of the year or 12 weeks of the year. So your starting point makes a big difference. So evaluate where you are currently, decide where it is you want to go in terms of your nutritional approach, what's your goal, 
first and foremost? Is it fat loss? Is it building muscle? Is it performance? Is it cognitive performance, physical performance, et cetera? Get clear on that. And then all you're looking to do is figure out, well, what path leads me from where I am to where I want to go? And then you work through that, whether that's the all or nothing, as I said, or the bit by bit changes. It's effectively reverse engineering the end goal. I know you would have done this massively in the finance. It's literally all reverse engineering based on mm-hmm. selling this amount of you know CDOs, et cetera. How many do I need to sell to hit this quota? Like That's what you're doing. You're just doing it with your nutrition. So I think when people approach it like that, they tend to set themselves up for success. And then it's just consistency after that. Dietary change and sticking to a diet. And the reason it's so difficult to change is because it's habitual. Eating is something we do every day and it's something we do consistently. And that's why it's so hard to break it and change it, more so than even changing up someone's training regimen because you're consistently doing it and you fall into these patterns. And the analogy I use in books is changing someone's nutrition based on their starting point. It's like trying to dig up a seed from the ground versus trying to tear up a sapling versus trying to knock down an oak tree. The longer something has been done and the longer it's been there, the harder it is to break it down. The same as digging up a seed is easier. Someone who doesn't have all this miseducation around food or hasn't been eating that poorly or is just younger, they're in their early 20s and doesn't have 20 years of miseducation and poor food choices behind them is going to make the change much faster than someone who's been dieting on and off for 30 years, who has a poor food relationship, who doesn't understand basic nutritional principles just yet. That's going to be harder. So you align the expectations accordingly with that. Yeah, and... So we have like this this foundation of consistency, right? Picking a nutritional template that is aligned with an ancestral way of eating, whether that's like dairy-free, grain-free, ketogenic, paleo, autoimmune paleo, pescatarian, where you're eating wild-caught fish, carnivore, where you're eating grass-fed animals for certain for certain people who can metabolize fats properly and their and their livers in a good place. So that's like your foundation, right? And I do think it's important to really bring truth and uh, awareness to how that's going because some people do really well like going all in and being Mm. strict Um, but some people may try that and find that they keep falling off and if you keep falling off uh, then you need to pivot and maybe try the other one like I'm going to consistently make some healthy changes that are improvement from the way that I've been eating, but I'm going to do it over a longer period of time. And I'm going to make my commitment to stick with this until I hit my target. Right. And then, you know, similarly, if you've tried that like slow and steady thing, cause it's more sustainable and, and it hasn't got the results that you want. Well, then you may need to go full psycho and commit a hundred percent and be like, no, I'm doing everything I possibly can. And the reality is if you're doing, if you're making a hundred percent effort to follow a nutritional template perfectly, and you're not that well versed in this stuff, you're probably only hitting seventy or eighty percent anyhow. You're probably making mistakes that you don't even know you're making, but that hundred percent will at least get you, you know, the eighty twenty Pareto principle on your nutritional template. So I want to encourage people to bring that awareness and truth to how is this approach working, and if it's not working, pivot. Yeah. And, and and commit to something else that may be better aligned with, you know, your lifestyle, your goals and preferences, your personality type, your mindset, etc. Can I just add one thing there as well, just so people don't think, well, you know, keto diet in particular, I should probably put a caveat with that because... If you're going, sometimes going keto can be better to go all or nothing because you know this, when you enter ketosis, everything feels easier. So 
it's hard to be half pregnant with keto, meaning that yeah. it, to, to do it bit by bit and sustainably isn't necessarily I'm going to slowly and surely get into ketosis. That's generally not the best approach from my experience and recommendation. Mm-hmm. But if you are coming from a food background where you're not making great choices, I wouldn't necessarily make the goal of ketosis in a short period of time, the goal. You're trying to just make yourself a bit more balanced with energy. So you're not riding a blood sugar roller coaster and you're getting those blood sugars balanced and becoming a little bit more insulin sensitive. And then you're gradually going to transition out until where you can go into keto, where you end up pulling back your carbohydrates, nutritional ketosis I'm talking about, as opposed to you know dietary ketosis, as opposed to fasting ketosis. So you start pulling up your fats, pulling down your protein, pulling down your carbs. So I just wanted to add that caveat as well. Just if people are like, oh, I'll slowly and surely get into ketosis. If that's the one out of all the ones we've mentioned, that might not be the best approach. So I just wanted to add that as well. Yeah, very good advice. So let's imagine that, um, and guys, if you're if you're enjoying this conversation and you're getting value from, from Brian and myself, share this episode up, send it to your family members, friends, coworkers, and uh, that's how we're able to do these podcasts and bring them to you for free. So share it up, fam. Um, Brian, let's say that we've got that foundation of consistency, a consistent following of a nutritional template in place. What, what else are some of your tips for, you know, nutrition for fat loss? It's weird because or, or I think... foods that you focus on for fat loss, you know, whatever angle you want to take. Yeah. So it's an interesting question because when I think of foods for fat loss, a question I get asked a lot, weirdly, but it's normally new people coming into my ecosystem is what's the best food for fat loss? And it's not the right question because... There are certain foods that will support fat loss potentially and certain foods that might not support it, but probably not for the reasons you think. When I think of supportive food for fat loss, I think of, you know, complex carbs, healthy fats, plants, complete protein sources. When I think of unsupportive foods, I think too much sugar, trans fatty acid, Mm. hydrogenated oils, all of these things. And what can happen sometimes is people go, well, I'll eat apples because apples are a fat burning food. I'm like, no, apples are full of nutrients and there's fiber in there, which will keep you fuller for longer, which may support your caloric intake over the space of a day. But if you want to call it a fat burning food, you can, but just be aware this is what it actually is. And mm-hmm. that can that thinking can put people down a rabbit hole of focusing on, well, I'll eat this food because it's a fat burning food. You see it in diet magazines and things like that all mm-hmm. the time. Online now, it's really prevalent where it's like, eat you know, loads of chilies and eat you know, X, Y, or Z food. And yes, there can be some potentially thermogenic benefits to certain chilies and all of these foods, but in and of themselves, they're not going to torch fat off your stomach or torch fat off your body. So just be aware of that on the front end. With nutrition, it's about being consistent more often than not. You mentioned it earlier about the Pareto principle. And I think with fat loss in particular, and body composition, more so than other goals that we haven't focused on because of you know biohacking secrets and the other people when cognitive performance and overall health and longevity is the goal. It's a different conversation. The advice I offer to somebody who's like, I want to live to 100, I'll say, well, okay, look at the research on genetics first and foremost, and then potentially here's some protocols that might help you get there. And here are some experts who can potentially support you better than I can. Mm-hmm. With fat loss and body composition, consistency matters. And that 80-20 can do it. You don't actually have to get your nutrition dialed in 100% all of the time. If you're training for a 100-mile ultramarathon and want to go into ketosis first, you probably do. You need to be 95 to 100% on it at all times. You don't with fat loss. And I would look at your nutrition as a whole. 
And if you have to have a chocolate bar or some ice cream or some cookies or some Doritos in there, although foods that are highly processed and wouldn't be great for health in general, but they're the things that allow you to adhere and stick to your nutrition with a fat loss goal, that can be a decent approach, including those mm-hmm. foods in your plan. And that's what I would think about. And that's what I would take away when it comes to nutrition and fat loss, unless you have secondary or third goals that you're trying to hit alongside it. As I said, longevity, health, cognitive performance, all of these other potential goals, sporting performance. If your goal is just fat loss, 80, 20 is going to be fine. More or less being in your caloric deficit over a seven day period. Another misconception people make is when they think calorie deficit, they think day to day. I would say, look at it week to week. You don't actually have to be in a deficit day to day. You can be in a deficit in a surplus on certain days and a deficit on certain days. As long as you're in an overall deficit at the end of the seven days, 14 days, 21 days, your body will tap into stored fat and use it for fuel. So think about it like that. And I think that is probably more important than, you know, potentially food focus that people will have. I think, as I said, stick to foods you enjoy because you'll be able to improve your adherence and stick to it and just make sure it's in alignment with your goals in the case of fat loss, meaning that you're not consuming too many calories that spills you over so that you can't get into those stored fat to burn it for fuel. I dig it. All right. Uh, just for fun, before we kind of dig a little bit deeper on what you're eating on a typical day, and you know, I want to hear more about your food selection and quantity and timing and all that. What What is one sleeper food for fat loss? Something that you eat or include or recommend to clients that a lot of people don't know about. I'm gonna I'm gonna share one too to kind of kick it off. And uh, so mine would be wild East Coast oysters. I, I typically stay away from the West Coast oysters because of a lot of uh, the the radiation from Fukushima ends up hitting the coast of California. And I'm not trying to eat animals that were swimming around in that. Um, I actually went and measured it myself. And like the radiation that was uh, in California was like 10x the radiation in Florida. So I gravitate towards the East Coast oysters. And um, and then, you know, you just be aware of, of what are you putting on your oysters Right. Um, and making sure that it's, you're gravitating towards the vinegar and, and those sorts of things. Or, or if, if it's a red sauce and you're good with uh, nightshades and, and tomatoes and that sort of thing. OK, perfect. Um, so that's my sleeper food. Um, what's yours? If I can go down a different route with the sleep, because yeah. I think I think sleep is one of the most underrated tools for fat loss that people uh-huh. fail to not prioritize on. And, and just to clarify, sleeper, I mean, like, I meant like overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. That's why I want to go in a different direction. Yeah. <laughs> so with nutrition and sleep and fat loss being a goal, they're hand in hand in terms of the importance level for a whole host of reasons. Sleep. Mm-hmm obviously will improve energy levels throughout the day. So things like neat activity can go up, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, you're moving around more, fidgeting, your workout intensity can go up. So if you're strength training or resistance training, you can burn more calories. What training does in weight training and resistance drills is it increases your metabolic rate, which means it boosts your metabolism, which effectively means you burn more calories while you rest. So weight training and resistance training is like the financial equivalent of making money while you sleep. You burn more calories while you rest. And having a high level of sleep quality can improve those sessions. So they're two kind of very obvious fitness examples. It also balances hormones like your ghrelin and leptin, your hunger and satiation hormones. They become downregulated after a poor night's sleep, which makes dietary adherence very difficult to stick to. So sleep is one of those things that once you have whatever nutritional plan you're following, 
your adherence and your ability to stick to it now becomes the most important thing. And sleep can enhance that ability to adhere to it. And as someone who's a notoriously poor sleeper, I actually fell into biohacking in order, one, to try and fix some of my gut issues, but also to improve my sleep quality. So I would vary down into that space. And I found, and in terms of life-changing supplement and hack, CBD oil. Mm. In terms of a supplement that has had the most positive impact on my life, nothing comes close to CBD oil before bed. And what brand do you I, take? I take the Hemp Heroes one. So Hemp Heroes? Hemp Heroes, yeah. So just full disclosure, I'm a brand ambassador for that, that brand. But okay. I'm sure there's other great brands out there that work great, but they're the ones that I use. And they were the ones that got me into it in 2018 because I had tried out other brands and didn't get the benefit. Yeah. And I didn't understand the dosing and my body weight and all these other things that are very obvious now. So David, who's one of the co-owners, he's now the full owner of it, but was co-owner at the time, explained it to me and was like, look, you take it like this, do it for the seven days, let me know how it goes. So took it for the seven days. And as someone that has does every sleep hack you can think of, the blocking out blue light with blue light blockers before bed, uh, no light in my room. So it's not touching off my, my skin in any way, getting out in the morning. First thing to get some of that vitamin D and that blue light so that I'm, I'm setting up my sleep for that night. First thing in the morning, I've literally tried as many hacks as you can go. And the one that brought it all together for me was CBD oil, especially when my training load goes up ahead of big races because my sleep requirements tend to go up and I really struggle when my cortisol is elevated with my increased mm. training load and I really find it hard to fall asleep and stay asleep. And CBD oil has been an absolute changer for me. So to go in a slightly different direction from what yeah, you said based like on it. the food, 100% CBD oil for me. Love it. So what, what advice did he give you that, uh, and what did you start doing differently? I obviously using, using the hemp heroes product was helpful. Do you have a discount code that we can? Yeah. Mention? Yeah. It's a uh, Brian K 10 for anyone that wants it. Yeah. Brian K 10. All right, cool. And, um, yeah. So what did he tell you to start doing differently beyond just using his CBD? So there was two things that were kind of obvious when I looked into it more. One was the dosage strength. So I don't smoke a lot of weed now, but I did when I lived in California. I was in California for a year. So I have a background and I probably have a higher level tolerance of CBD than, than some people listening. So straight away, I needed a higher dose because... I just didn't work. Also my body weight, because I'm obviously 85 kilos, a lot of muscle. So I didn't have the dosage right, which was something that's so obvious based on all knowledge of supplements and food to a degree that I just didn't really think about. The second how was... You, how much do you take? So I take... I'm using off droppers. So I use the extra strength 15% and I work off just the dropper. So I don't track the specific dose. I just do it off the droppers and I'll go, you know, three to four drops or three to four droppers based on the intensity of training load. Three so, to four full droppers. Uh, I'll go three full droppers on a very hard training load and I'll go kind of one to two then on basic days and then I'll cycle off as well. So on non-training days or easy training splits where I'm just doing a deload or a taper, I don't take it at all just so that I got to get maximum benefit from it. Awesome. So that's how I took it. And the second thing he said to me, which I never really thought about was he goes, you need to let it build up in your system a little bit, which I've seen actually contradictory reports, but this did work for me. So I'll share it. 
I had taken CBD oil in the past, but I took it sporadically, like melatonin. Like melatonin, I'm a huge fan of. But obviously, you know that you know, if you supplement with it, you stop your own natural production. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. But it, it I've, heard, I've heard mixed things from people. Yeah. Dr. John Lawrence doesn't feel like there's a negative feedback loop. loop. Other people believe there is. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, outside of my area, I, I can only read the research. I'm so far away from, I don't do the yeah. research, so I can yeah. only comment on it. So, but with CBD, David said to me, look, take it for five to seven days straight. And he goes, it would be like a light switch. And that's the example I've used for people. And that's what happened. Nothing happened for five or six days. I didn't feel mm. any benefit. And then as if someone switched a light, my sleep just went from, a four out of 10 to like a nine or a 10 out of 10 overnight. Wow. Yeah, it was. And when I say life changing, Anthony, it was the biggest impact. And I, I hate overselling it in case not everyone has that same benefit. So I'm not saying this, look, take the CBD, you know, and you'll get the same benefit as me. And, and I also don't want to pitch just because I'm a brand ambassador for them. Like use other CBD oil, like experiment with it yourself. This isn't a, a play on my side, but in terms of authenticity, in terms of supplements that had the most positive impact on me, it's not even comparable with anything else because of the sleep quality enhancement, which has had the positive impact on all the other areas of my life. So yeah, I've been a huge fan of it. And they were kind of the two things that I was unaware of in 2018 when I started taking it that I'm more clued in on now. That is awesome. Uh, Guys, if you're enjoying this episode and this conversation, share it up. And uh, Brian, I've had a blast. I mean, I've learned a ton. I've got a page plus of notes here. (laughs) <laughs> and and other fun things to implement. Thank you for doing this. Babe, this is one of my favorite podcasts, Anthony. This was an absolute blast. Yeah, I feel like we crushed it. Um, for our listeners who want to stay up to date on all the cool things you're working on and and follow you and you know, your get your books and programs, what's the what are the best ways for them to do that? Oh, amazing. So briankeefitness.com is the website, the mothership where everything is. Uh, Brian underscore Keen underscore fitness on Instagram and the Brian Keen podcast. I'm on every channel. I'm on literally YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, the whole lot. Uh, but Instagram is the main thing and the podcast and then the website, brianqueenfitness.com. Love it. Love it. Brian, thank you so much, brother. This has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll have to do a round two sometime. A hundred percent. Andy, as I said, this was an absolute blast and thanks so much for having me on and asking incredible questions. As I said, like things that I hadn't even thought about before. Um, So I really appreciate the awesome interview and thanks so much again. And we will do a round two for sure. Appreciate you too, brother. Take care. None of us are born with the warrior spirit. It is taught and trained. On the wrestling mats of Iowa, the mountains of Dagestan, and in homes across the world. Courage is learned from mentors and elders. Bravery is inoculated by a regimen of strategic training and discipline. This discipline culminates when the warrior has garnered the skill set to do what most men can't or won't, when he willingly runs into the fires of initiation because that is where his people need him. We feel disconnected when we chase the false idols of money, material possessions, and comfort. But true purpose and freedom are earned by training those parts of ourselves from which most men run. Some heavy shit is coming down, brothers. And those who rise to accept this call will go through it and win. The body, mind, and spirit are your instruments of victory. One cannot be properly trained 
while ignoring the other two. Our elite one-on-one coaching program is this training and your call to rise. Whether you're trying to build muscle, burn fat as fast as possible, upgrade your brain, reclaim your health, or unleash the warrior within, I will build you a personalized game plan to take your body, mind, and spirit to their true potential. At biohackercoaching.com, you will tap into the most cutting-edge health, anti-aging, and transformation protocols personalized exclusively for you to radically enhance your physical and mental performance. You'll have me in your corner as your coach and guide. With detailed instructions and advanced custom techniques to optimize your life, weaponize your body, and bulletproof your mind so that you achieve your goals as fast and safe as humanly possible. You'll discover science-derived lifestyle hacks I've only shared with our roster of Olympic gold medalists, world-class athletes, U.S. Special Forces, high-level businessmen, and super achievers from all walks of life, people ruthlessly committed to unlocking their ultimate capabilities. This program is for beginners, intermediate, and advanced fitness levels and provides everything you need to optimize your body, mind, and spirit's full capacity. We run labs and and blood work first because we believe in testing, not guessing. Then we use those data points to build you a unique, personalized program to correct underlying challenges and transform you into the man or woman you're here to become. Whether you're wanting to get shredded, add pounds of lean muscle, sharpen your mental focus and brain power, or heal, everything you need is included, and you'll have me in your corner holding you accountable, and guiding you through every step of the way. Because this isn't something I outsource to other coaches who may not have the skill set or experience you need, I can only work with five men each month. To grab a time for us to speak and determine if our Apex coaching program is a fit, go to biohackercoaching, B-I-O-H-A-C-K-E-R-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com and book a time for you and I to discuss your goals. Because we receive 50 to 100 applications each month for these five spots, if you'd like to request your application gets moved to the top of the list, send me a text message to my personal phone at 847-989-3743 and let me know why you're ready to change your life. This is elite, personalized training at the highest level with zero guesswork. Only a small handful of people get this level of access to me and these teachings. If you've resonated with this, go to biohackercoaching.com now and fill out the short application form to grab a time for us to connect. Strength and honor.